Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. And today I am joined by repeat offender, Alex Hillman. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Uh, thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud to wear that name tag. <laughs> so cool. I, I never know how to introduce you. It's like author of the Tiny MBA, Indie Hall founder. What have you, What's keeping you busy these days? Yeah, so I, I still am very much splitting time between Indie Hall, and Indie Hall is in an interesting state. Um, and for those who, who aren't familiar, Indie Hall is a, a co-working community that I started uh, in the very, very early days of co-working back in 2006. The last couple of years have been a weird time to, to run a co-working space, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but the last few months, we've slowly been rebuilding uh, a, a new in-person headquarters clubhouse and that's been going really really well and sort of a lot of back to basics in terms of the community building side of things kind of rebuilding pieces of that business and then the other part of my world is uh, the stuff that i do with amy hoy uh, stacking the bricks the tiny mba is the, the book that i published and we spoke about last time i think yep. um and um and a bunch of other stuff to help creative people start shipping products uh, as part of their their core business offering. So, yeah, I, I kind of wander, have my fingers in all kinds of things, but broadly through both of these sort of universes where they overlap is working with creative people in either starting or growing some element of an independent creative business. Sweet, love it. Yeah, that's great. So the the impetus for this particular interview was a thread a sort of tweet storm that you posted on Twitter that seems to be it seemed like it was blowing up it came on my radar which is saying something I'm not on Twitter that much anymore but uh yeah it was really really good it seems you said before the show that it's still still making the rounds a couple of weeks later it so that's pretty impressive so you want to kind of intro that and we can kind of focus the conversation around that topic. Sure, sure. And a little bit of helpful context, I think, too, and and perhaps why this thread is still doing numbers and still resonating with people. Um, this is very much inspired by an interaction that I had in a, in a couple of days before I wrote it with a friend and colleague who is super talented at what she does and is new at being a business owner doing that thing. Yeah. And I've engaged her to come on and do some work with me on a project. And we've been talking about what that would look like. And she pitched me a, a retainer. And keep in mind, this is someone that I know and I trust and I like, and I reached out to to work with. And she's like, you know, are you open to a retainer? And I said, sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously I want to, I want to pay you. I want this to, to work really well. And the retainer that I, I got, I looked at and I was like, neither you or I know what the heck you're going to be working on. So what if, what if you and I, like, I just buy a chunk of your time, two hours, four hours, whatever you think is reasonable for us to actually put together the real thing, like we got to figure out what it is we're going to working on. Let's put some boundaries on it, set some goals to it. And again, happy to pay for that time. And then if, if we do that well, then we'll know exactly what this retainer covers. You'll know more confidently and I'll know more confidently that the price point makes sense. 
And it's going to be easier for me to organize the budget around it. And where's that money going to come from? This is a new project, a new organization. Am I going to be paying for some of that out of existing budgets? Am I going to go get money through other means? And this was kind of a, 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 a shocking request for her, for me to be asking for, um, uh, because she'd never heard of anybody even wanting that sort of thing. And so I, I basically explained, I was like, this is the way I I work. I don't work with somebody until I've done a small contained paid project mm -hmm. in part because I think it makes it easier and clearer to know what we're going to be working on. But, uh, but also it's an opportunity without all the strings attached and negotiation of a retainer that if we decide that maybe we shouldn't be working together. We can figure that out for a fixed price up front in a couple of hours and then go on our way. And in that moment, she goes, I'm so glad I'm learning this now because this would have saved me from so many painful projects in the past. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I realized in that, in that conversation, I was like, you know, my friend is super smart. She's good at what she does. There's, there's, I guarantee there's other people that, just don't know that this is even an option. And so I decided to share it. And that was sort of, you know, breaking down some of the pieces of why, why I think this works better for both parties, how I structure it. Mm -hmm. And then I also did a follow-up based on some questions about how you can actually use this with existing clients. If you're somebody who is in the hourly uh, a relationship with a client that one of these fixed price discovery projects can be a, a powerful tool to start moving in the direction of project-based billing mm -hmm. or at the very least half day, full day kind of billing, but, you know, getting rid of hourly. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. the whole thing, right, Jonathan? Sure. So, um, so yes, yeah, so that's sort of the, the context. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we can we can pull any of those threads. I can get into specifics. Uh, you know, what do you think would be most helpful for folks to to know know about this process? Yeah, I've got about six questions already. So so the awesome. first one is um, how she's a designer. Is that what you said, or am I just imagining that? No, interestingly enough, she doesn't really come from. Well, I think we would consider a traditional creative field. She actually works in advocacy on like policy and government side of mm -hmm. things. So I'm working with her on a project where I want to help local government people better understand the independent workforce and help them understand that like when you say gig economy and you think Uber drivers and you know food delivery drivers and and things like that that's not what me and my community are and we actually you know both of these communities are important but we are a massive invisible workforce that has the ability to generate a lot more taxable revenue for a city. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to encourage the city, I want to help the city see that and understand that um, towards a bigger term goal of just like broadly legitimizing solo independent business owners as a real economic development mm -hmm. source. Yeah. Um, and so she has the expertise in advocacy and policy work and has done incredible things, but is used to working uh, uh, sort of within institutions. And so doing this as a, as a solo consultant herself, entirely new world. And I also think this is a really interesting example where like she does know other people that do advocacy and policy work as a consultant, but 
most of them don't know other designers, writers, marketers for whom I think this kind of discovery project, fixed price discovery is maybe a little more common vernacular, mm-hmm. doesn't show up in her world at all. So I think that's also sort of an interesting bit of context. Mm. Okay. And so what was her, I'm just curious what her retainer looked like, because that word is just really uh, broadly defined, let's say. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Was she thinking it was kind of like a certain number of hours per month, or was she thinking it was like a month-to-month thing that was just purely advisory where you'd proactively ask her questions and she'd answer them quickly, or like what? I know you decided not to do that, but I'm curious what she thought she was offering. What was the thing she, she, what was the, what did it look and feel like when she offered the retainer? That's a great question. So I think it's a good example of what people who are new at offering retainers think goes into retainers. Mm -hmm. It was a monthly fee with a six month minimum and an overview of things that she would be able to help with. But in that overview of things she'd be able to help with, there was a bunch of question marks, like literally like in parentheses, like we need to define what that this means. I think it was like I, I, the clue is right there on the page that it was un, underdefined. I hadn't defined it for her. Mm-hmm. She hadn't defined it for me. We still had some like learning of each other's language and expectations. And a thing I said to her right up front, I said, I've never worked with somebody like you. I don't even really know what you can do. I know what you're capable of, but that's different from knowing what you can do. What do you mean by that? You're so so yeah. I know I know what outcomes she's created in her career, but I don't know the individual pieces that it took to do them. So for instance, if she's going to do policy work for uh, what, advocacy work, what does that really mean? So in my mind, like I said, that means I want I want to be on the radar of lawmakers and be able to go in give testimony to city council and find opportunities for those kinds of things. But the, like, what are the things she's going to do to make that possible, make that e- easier? What is the actual underlying strategy even wasn't really even on the page. So if you, if you are, um, it sounds like your vision was pretty clear for the outcomes. Is that right? I knew, I knew, I knew the destination. At least I thought I did. And what's interesting, we talk more about this. Mm-hmm. I thought I knew the destination mm-hmm. in the discovery project we did. There was a light bulb moment where she said something, and I was like, "That's the thing." There's no way. Like, I, I it was a total reframe of the destination with a million times more clarity than I had ever had on the project. It wasn't didn't really change the direction, but it it made it crystal clear what I wanted her to work on. Um, before and after that for us like do yeah do you remember it yeah so the i said there was this high level idea of like i want the policy folks and lawmakers and city council and even just some local institutions that are active in these cycles in this process that i by the way have no patience or tolerance for so having a an expert in in the mix is incredibly helpful um i want them to understand us Right. Because I I believe that if they understand who we are and what we represent economically in the city, then we can rearrange some things that don't make sense. We can make better laws. We can make better incentives. We can make better structures that serve this business community. That's what I know I wanted. That's the outcome. Yep. Perfect. Great. How do do you know we like the question became like, how do we know that we're getting there until we get there? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
um, she, she brought up a, like a really specific goal that is measurable and something that we can work backwards from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that we have a goal. There's a mayor's race coming up a big one. And she said, we should make it a goal to be in all the right places so that regardless of who wins mayor, that we're invited to be a part of the transition team so that the mayor and the team that they build around them who are making all these decisions about the next four to eight years of strategy for the city that we're already in the room. Hmm. And I was like, if we do that, that on like, if we do that, that unlocks between four and eight years of a bunch of other really important work. And even if we don't accomplish that goal, mm-hmm. we probably built a bunch of really valuable relationships along the way. Mm-hmm. So there's basically like, there's no way to lose. It's just like multiple versions of, of succeeding. And that so- like finding that level of clarity inside of, we want them to know that we exist. And instead like, we're either on the transition team or or not, and either way, we we've still made significant progress. Was yeah. a big light bulb moment in that conversation. Okay, so so if I said that back to you, your progress metric would be building more valuable relationships with people in government places. Yeah. Okay. And and then even smaller things along the way, like and this is another thing that came up in the discovery project was, you know, what are some of the other things that we can either strategically do or when they happen, we know it's working, getting candidates and their teams to not just understand us and you and understand our talking points, but to use those talking points and use them correctly. Mm. Um, so this, this is kind of an influence campaign in a yeah. way I hadn't really thought about it. And so in that way that like, it does connect more into the marketing world that I understand the communications world that I understand. Um, and even the education world that I understand, but I hadn't really fully connected those dots. And I, I feel like it would have been really, really easy for, and to be working on a bunch of things that maybe would have been valuable to those goals, but I didn't really understand how or why. Mm -hmm. And therefore I would have maybe second guessed why I was spending that money, or I would have thought what we should be spending that money on something else because I didn't see how the pieces fit together right so you it would feel like she's just like these are the activities i do in my daily my daily work life that was how and i'll tell you what the the real tip off and this is again another one of those i totally understand why people do it um mistakes is the entire retainer proposal was kind of built around a weekly meeting and she had sort of reverse engineered it around she's going to be doing a bunch of things on her own but the weekly meetings sort of create a unit of time that is easy to feel like you're billing for mm-hmm. and kind of prove yourself and your existence of the work, which again, makes total like intellectual sense. Mm-hmm. But once you've been in business for like the absolute last thing I want in my life is more meetings <laughs> and to pay for more meetings. I'd rather <laughs> not. Great way to put it. Right. Yeah, you want the result. I want the result and I want to be a part of that process, but ultimately I'm paying you to be an expert. So I don't want to be in a weekly meeting. I maybe want a weekly email that says, here's meetings that I was in on your behalf that I was learning. Here's some people that we should line up conversations with because they're really high priority and you spending 30 minutes with them is going to be meaningful in terms of impact. But that's different from spending the same 30 minutes with the consultant Mm -hmm. to 
to tell me a, a progress report. Yeah. That, that doesn't seem, but like, again, that was what the retainer was structured around. Mm -hmm. And, and I, again, I think that's the kind of thing that makes so much sense when you're used to thinking about your value in units of time and are trying to make this shift to justify, uh, to justify your time. When in fact, I'm not paying you for your time or my time. I'm, I'm paying you because I need a thing done and you're the expert that I want to do it. Right. And, and, and your, your understanding of your understanding, you're like, I kind of know I want something like this. And I kind of think like, you're the kind of person that could kind of do this kind of thing that I think I want. So it, so there's way too much uncertainty for someone to like start the clock ticking and be like, okay, I did all these activities and cause there's just way too many assumptions. Like she's going to do her yeah. thing, but it might not be the right series of steps to take to get you where you want to go. If it's not a hundred percent clear to both of you. And maybe, maybe, maybe even if it is the right series of steps, you're not going to be bought in on it and feeling like, how's this going to work out? I don't even feel like I told her exactly what I, I want to accomplish. And are you sure this is going to get us where you want to go? Meanwhile, like every month, you know, 10 grand, 10 grand, 10 grand or whatever it is. Right. Right. So you, you need to be bought in more into the process. So, so, you know, dear listener, Alex is sharing the buyer's side of, of what, like what's going through their mind in this situation. It's, and I love the, I love the paradox of the seller trying to justify or justify the price or the fee by setting up a meeting. And you're like, wait, I'm paying to be sucked into a meeting. It's the yeah. exact opposite. Can I, of pay, I can I pay to have meetings go away? Is that like, an can option? I pay extra to not have yeah. a meeting? <laughs> that's, I mean, I, I, it, that's, that's kind of the, the, the subcontext a hundred percent. You know, I, I think I, there's another piece to this where, you know, ha having, gone through my own version of realizing the power of, of the, the tool of a, a fixed price discovery project, mm -hmm. um, getting to experience it from the other side, you know, when, when you are in the early kind of like proposal stages of, of a project, how many times does the client not know what they want, or even more commonly, they think they know they want what they want, but they're not right, or they're not a hundred percent right. And the, I think the, 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 the subtle difference here is I might have been a, a rare client in that I knew that I right. wasn't quite clear on what I wanted. And even if I was, I probably, I wasn't sure that I was correct. And so I was asking the consultant to, well, let's figure that out. The clarify flip side of that, yeah. yeah, help me clarify and I'm, I'm happy to pay for it. Um, but I, you know, to, to go back to, you know, me being in the consultant shoes, this is a way for me to know that when I draft up the proposal, whether it's retainer, project-based, the billing structure doesn't matter. There's no guessing. I know that you, I know what you want. I know that what you said you want is what you actually need. And the proposal is just kind of a recap of what we agreed is the right direction for the project. Yeah. Instead of me sinking a bunch of time into a document that's a guess, and then having to do a bunch of back and forth and possibly not even landing the project. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the worst part of the proposal pro process is you spend a bunch of time trying to persuade somebody, I can help you. And then they look at it and they go, no, for any number of reasons. And now you've lost all of that time hmm. versus what I think sometimes people uh, uh, try to flip the strong Well, let me see if I can get paid to do the proposal. And that was a way that I kind of framed it in my Twitter thread. Mm -hmm. And I, I had actually had another conversation in Indy Hall's discord about 
uh, with some of our fellow business owners, they said they kind of sh- struck out in the whole like paid proposal approach. And I was like, well, break down what's going on. And in their mind, they were, I think, over-indexing on the idea of trying to charge the client to write a proposal instead of, and this is like the real secret sauce of the way I started doing these discovery projects is the deliverable on a discovery project when I do them is a document. Mm -hmm. That document outlines everything we talked about, what you believe the goals are, what you believe the challenges are, how I understand them and how I believe basically my recommendations on here's how I would solve this problem in enough detail that it's understandable and believable. And in many cases, and this is, I think even more true, the bigger the project in enough detail that when I go back to them with a deliverable, I say, here's what needs doing in my expert opinion. You now have three options. You can do that work in-house with whatever people you already employ, Mm -hmm. or you can go out on the free market and find somebody at whatever price they're going to charge to do that work for you. Yeah. And here's the or list of stuff option three. And, and again, I bulleted it out. These are the expert recommendations. Somebody else can go implement my plan mm-hmm. at whatever cost you can get it at, or you can hire me and here's the price to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was a basically 100% hit rate. The only things that the only time it didn't hit is when they either decided this project's not a priority at which point it doesn't matter to me because I got paid for that recommendation document anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there was a negotiation, but it wasn't a, no, it was a, not that, but let's make some changes. Mm-hmm. So that uh, reframing the deliverable, instead of getting paid as a propo- for a proposal, I'm giving you something that's useful, whether you continue paying me or not. No and I made that clear upfront. That's the offer. I'm going to work with you, maybe work with your team members. Some of the bigger projects that I did where I was doing more like, like workplace culture stuff that was a little more immersive and had way more dynamics and players. Um, I was like, look, the, the price of the discovery project, actually me spending two weeks on site with your team and getting to know people. Like I'm basically going in and doing deep research and then coming back with a set of recommendations to do a thing. Mm-hmm. And that set of recommendations is going to be valuable on its own, even if you and I never speak again. Right. That's but if key. you like, but if you like my approach, there's a pretty good chance you're going to want to hire me to be the one doing it. And then when you get into that phase, you know, that's where you've got all the leverage because they're like, I love how you listened. You understand the problem. Your recommendations are great. Of course we want you to do it. And, you know, within bounds of reason and budget at that point, it almost doesn't matter what price tag you put on it because they're already on board. You, you've, you've got them invested in your ability to understand the problem, craft the solution, and now all that's left is delivery. Yeah. The odds of them shopping around are next to zero. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's great. So there's, there's one thing, um, one thing I want to point out in the, in the story with when you were the buyer, I think you said her name is Anne. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that I don't know if this is also in your deliverable when you produce it, but you had a really clear progress metric. So there was a way that you could measure that you were going in the right direction, that the car was on the road and not in the ditch, that the the work that was that was um, being done was moving in the right direction. And you could actually measure that with like, you could probably use a CRM or something to say like, oh yeah, we're getting like more and more higher level politicians and city leaders 
on the phone, maybe even, you know, starting to use talking points, like you could measure that stuff. And you could say, well, when we started, we had zero relationships with these politicians or whoever. And now, you know, three months later, I've got a, a little black book of 45 people who are in positions of power in, in local government. And if you, the buyer, believe that that, that those relationships are a meaningful leading indicator of your ultimate desired outcome, then you'll pay for that all day long, right? It's and like, I care very little about how we get there. Or how much right? time and she I, spends I'm, doing it. Totally, totally. Right. Yeah, love that. Um, what what are some of the what are some of the questions that came up on the thread about I mean I love the over indexing on the like I'm gonna get paid, you know, sort of mercenary style to write my normal bad proposal versus that sort of mind shift of like uh, I'm gonna create a roadmap for these people. It's completely portable, no lock in. You don't have to do the project with me, but we can have this very low risk engagement that will be time boxed or it'll be it'll be short and uh and kind of test drive the relationship and they can get to know you, you get to know them. And then, you know, that's, it's just a completely different mind shift. It's not like getting away with, you know, getting paid to write a proposal. It's more like you are <laughs> right. creating a valuable piece of, it's really, it's really like clarity is really the word. I mean, that's a clarity. And in, in some cases, you know, it's a strategy doc, right? It's, right. it's the, these are the underlying beliefs, assumptions, possibilities and guiding principles. And the truth is, is that the, at the level that the document pr is providing, the implementation details matter a lot less so long as they're like, this is what we want and roughly the way we want it. Yeah. And this is how we're going to measure that it's working. Yeah, exactly. Right? So that when you don't have a progress metric, that's when clients start to be like, well, how many hours did you put in? Right, and right, it's right. Like, it's like, well, you got nothing else to look at than, than the hours. They, they're going to want to feel like they're not driving blind. They're going to want right. to feel like they're not driving blind. And if you don't give them something to measure that you believe you can control other than your inputs, then they're going yep. to start asking about inputs. So if you, when I talk to people about writing a proposal, a three option proposal for a project, just like you described, and the, there's a really important section right after the cover letter that I call the situation appraisal, where you in plain English, just three or four sentences, you describe the client's current situation. And then another paragraph, similar size, you describe their desired future situation or desired future state, where they want to go, how do they want to be different? And then, and then a third paragraph that explains what they believe and you agree will be your contribution to that transformation. Yep. And it's all stuff, you know, I, I started a workshop called automatic proposals, because if you get those answers, the proposal like writes itself like automatic, it's just like, boom, it just comes right out. And they don't have to be long. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch of scope or spec or anything like that because you're not going to measure that stuff. It's probably going to mm -hmm. change it anyway, mm -hmm. it was, especially with software. You usually work with software stuff. So the the stuff that you come up with and the number of tables and the energy relationship diagram and the business logic, that stuff is all going to, maybe not all, but a lot of it's going to change. It's going to be in flux and no one's going to come back to the proposal and be like, no, you said there were going right. to be 105 tables and there's only 104 they don't care about that. They care about something much bigger, much, much more business, businessy, increasing or decreasing something. And, and if you can define that for people in an upfront engagement, you know, maybe it's a week, maybe it's two weeks, then, and they'll, they'll just feel so certain. They'll feel so much certainty and trust. Uh, I like that you mentioned that the, the way that you listen 
that you actually heard them. Yeah. You say it back to them in plain English in a way that's even better than they could have articulated on their own. So you really present yourself as like a consultant and not a pair of hands who's just sitting there waiting for them that's to exactly, tell you what to do. That's exactly right. And I think that's a really important mental shift for, for people. Um, the I really like the sort of three paragraph structure that you described. It is essentially identical to the copywriting formula that we teach in 30 by 500 uh, that, that Amy and I created. We call it pain, dream, and fix. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. But it's the same three components. And it's also like from a, from a psychology perspective, the reason that works for anyone who's interested in the psychological part of things is it's also the same structure of a three-act story. <laughs> There's an inciting incident yeah, that creates yeah. conflict. There is an escalation of that conflict. And, and while you describe it, and I, we do is what we call it dream, the sort of like, what is the desired state? The distance between the desired state and the current conflict is tension. Right. Right. That's that is by definition what creates tension, character development, what makes a story interesting. And then the fix is the resolution. That's what makes the story satisfying. And a story that is just like, and then they lived happily ever after is is really unsatisfying and it doesn't draw anybody along. Meanwhile, a bad thing happened, bad thing is no longer happening, also not particularly compelling. So having all three pieces is really valuable for getting people to connect with the the sort of emotional structure of of the process mm. and then the other piece of it and so you you didn't say it explicitly but it's very much implied it's not about what you're going to do it's all about them right they are the main character of this three act story it's their challenge and problem. It is yeah. their goal and dream. And you then play a small supporting character in making sure that they get from point A to point B mm -hmm. through whatever means of delivery or, or, or process or service or product. Or again, what you're delivering is inconsequential so long as they believe that and agree, and agree of where they are now, where they want to get to and that the process you're providing actually makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not Luke, you're Obi-Wan. Correct, Yeah, <laughs> that's very correct. Yeah, dig it. So what are, what are some, are there other objections or sticking points that you found in, in teaching this either based on that Twitter thread or just in general? besides the, you know, just like thinking they're getting away with something versus, yeah. you know, providing something that's genuinely valuable on its own. So the other one was around using this with an existing client or re-engaging with a past client. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of investigating to figure out where that comes from and what that sort of objection or anxiety really is. And I think a lot of it comes down to people being afraid to change a thing, a relationship that they already have. Mm -hmm. And, and it comes, you know, if you think about it, you know, if I've got a client, we're used to working hourly. And the assumption that I have going into this is that this is a client that you like working with, yeah. that you have successfully completed one or more projects on time, on budget, within bounds of reason. Uh, and ideally that they are somebody who is authorized to make a business or spending decision, um, or they're, uh, you have a direct line to that person 
through the person you're interacting with most of the time. You know who's making the the business call ultimately to to sign the contract or the check or or whatever it might be. Um, and the reminder, well, like so so digging into that a little bit more, the, what it sounded like is someone who's got an existing relationship like that, which as I just described it, is a really good client really relationship. Good client, You've got a yeah. client like that, a good client, you're a, you're a good you know vendor, consultant, whatever the, the framing is. There are a lot of folks who are afraid to change that relationship because they don't want to lose the client, mm-hmm. which again, I understand that, right? <laughs> you don't, you, like, it's good. I don't want to blow it. But what I found, what I, I sort of in digging through that, I realized I had to remind somebody, like, if you have a good relationship with a client, they are incentivized to keep you by all means necessary because most consultants and freelancers and service providers aren't good. Yeah. They don't deliver what they say they're going to deliver on time, on budget. They don't communicate well. So like if if a if a, a client likes you, look they're not looking for ways to get rid of you. Quite the opposite. They're looking for ways to make sure they can keep you a part of their team. And so long as the incentives stay aligned, they're not going to care a ton about the billing structure. With the caveats of what we've already described is they kind of need to trust you enough that they're not going to be micromanaging down to the hour. And so you can solve for that by using this process, uh, I think, as sort of a guide rather than saying, hey, we're going to switch from hourly to project-based or we're going to switch from hourly to, you know, half day or full day blocks, whatever, whatever you're trying, switch you're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Being able to bring a discovery project in is, is, Kind of like a um, a a tool for showing them that you are actually as trustworthy as they already believe you are mm-hmm. in a new context. So you know right. the, they, the they opener might be like, that well, I, how would that work? And you're like, well, yeah. I can show you. We can do a little a little one. And exactly. I'll show you. I mean, you said the magic word before, which is certainty, right? If it's different, it's not that they hate it and think they're going to get screwed. It's you're introducing something they've not experienced before. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have experienced it before with another consultant and they prefer it. They've just never brought it up because they thought you preferred hourly. That's also possible too. Right. But you know, the, the opener that I suggested for the person who is apprehensive about bringing this to an existing client or maybe re-engaging a past client, saying something like, you know, hey, we've worked together for a while. Um, I, I think I've gotten to know you and your business pretty well, uh, you know, and, and we've talked about some of the, the challenges that y- you're looking at doing now. Um, last time we talked, you, know, you mentioned X, Y, Z is a problem that you're looking to solve. Is that, is that still something you're looking to solve? And, and if so, I'd love to talk about it. And if not, let's catch up and find out what something is. Um, the key here is you're kind of reminding them that they've already invested in the relationship. Right. Odds are they know that, but it doesn't hurt to remind them. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, it shows you that you've been listening in those conversations that are maybe a step or two out of scope of the usual arrangements. You you were able to identify other business problems besides the very specific thing that you were that hourly mercenary for in the past. Um, and you're also opening the door for them to tell you about other business problems that maybe you haven't talked about or that aren't in the field of vision because of the, the part of the business that you were working on. Exactly. Um, but in all in all cases, and again, the, the, the language is not a, a script so much as a structure, um, similar to your, you know, three paragraph suggestion with, with proposals. 
but like using this as a setup to say, let me get to know, a, a, let me take what I already know about you in your business and show you that I can frame that knowledge around a new problem or set of problems that you're already motivated to solve and spend money to solve. And with without significant investment, and you and I are going to spend two hours, three hours, four hours together, kind of workshopping through that. And at the end, I'd love to give you some recommendations on, on how I think you could fix it. And now we're back to that. You could fix it internally. You could fix it with somebody else, or I may be able to help you fix it as well. And at that point, you're only subtly really pitching the the longer term range of your services. And what you're showing up is saying like, I would like to translate some of my outside perspective, but insider knowledge of your business into something useful for you and maybe help you think through and decide on a solution for a thing that you're stuck on or struggling with. Um, and, and doing it in a way that really respects their, their time and their money upfront look, I know you're super busy. If we carve out two hours and you pay X amount of money, like you'll have a, you'll have a plan, right? You'll, I'm going to give you a plan. And what you do with that plan, there's a bunch of options, which could include me helping you execute that plan. But the point is, is you'll go from why I have a problem to, I have a plan for a lot of business owners. That sounds great. And I'll also say that for the business owner who that doesn't sound great to, you probably don't want to work with them in that capacity. And that's a great thing to learn as well. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you've got a problem from problem to plan. That's really good. Uh, And it's automatically, it's going to sound valuable to good clients and bad clients will will run screaming. The other thing that you're doing there, which it it does depend on what the person had been doing previously with the client, but let's say it was some kind of coding or design or like marketing emails or something kind of hourly freelancery and and very execution-oriented. Yep. And when you come back and you present them with an, uh, an option like this or a proposal like this, when you propose such a meeting, then you're presenting yourself as a strategic altitude person, like a brain instead of a pair of hands. That's right. That's right. So it's reframing in their minds, like where you can add value to their business. And it's a, it's, I call it a higher altitude. It's a much higher altitude than execution. It's like the level up from that. And it's extremely profitable if you can regularly get those kinds of engagements. It's extremely profitable because it doesn't take that much time, but it's very Mm -hmm. valuable to the buyer. So there's a price. There's always a price in there that has a lot of margin for both parties where something like an ongoing execution for like maybe you're building a a SaaS or like a Rails app or something. It's a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of a lot of sitting in the chair typing and it's not a it's the execution stuff is very it can be very, it can be very high revenue wise, like, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, just working hourly building rails apps, but it's 40, 50, 60 hours a week of work. Right. You know, so if exactly. you could, right. So if you can start to, to sprinkle in some of these higher level strategic, uh, whatever you want to call it, it depends on your industry, but it could be strategic. It could be capital D design, like real design, like high level design, right. um, could be, planning, you know, strategic planning. There's, there's all sorts of things, but it's where you're, where you're just, you, based on your expertise, you're making recommendations, creating plans, um, structures, frameworks, things like that. It's not you at the keyboard banging away. And if you can start to sprinkle those into your product and service mix and start to build that stuff up, 
get more and more of that, you might find pretty quickly, you know, in a year or two that you don't even really want to be banging away at the keyboard anymore. This other stuff is way less risky, it's way higher profit. Revenue takes a little while to catch up or it can. So you might have a transition phase, which is tricky, but it's, it's a, I've never met anybody who didn't prefer like, oh, I really miss making login screens. You know, it's just, it's just, well, the other thing is, is like, once you do it, you're in control of the proportions. So like, I mean, the thing you just described is exactly how I made my transition from a freelancer to a consultant. I was a web developer builder for hire. And I found people who hired me because I was reliable. I showed up and did what I said I was going to do. I was a good communicator. I was proactive. Like the bar is super low, <laughs> but I stood out because I cleared the bar and a lot of people didn't. And a good number of those clients became return clients. I got to know their business. And then we started talking about other parts of the business. And it was a mix of me willing to be curious enough to ask thing, ask about things that were kind of outside of scope of what I was there to work on mm -hmm. and them get a sense that I actually was taking the time to understand, do my own research occasionally, you know, kick an idea their way that was not an idea they asked for, but was good. And they liked it or in some cases implemented it. And over time started doing more of that stuff for them. And then I would start get, they would recommend me to a business peer because business people know other business people. Yeah. So I work with a guy who owns an e-commerce company. He's got some other e-commerce buddies. They're like, and he's talking about me. They're like, can I talk to your guy too? He's like, yeah, of course. So, you know, it, it, you bec start becoming known for that sort of thing. And then you, you get to make the call. And as someone who really does like making stuff, I'm, I get to keep just enough of that to satisfy that, that itch to make a thing. And if I, and I, and I can justify that because I'm making good margin the rest of the time. And I'm doing that for the satisfaction of just the satisfaction, or in some cases, it's a way for me to stay up to date on tools, technology, best practices. And especially as I was getting into more strategic consulting, where I was working inside other people's teams, there was an interesting pattern where a lot of times the technology team that was in-house, if I had to work with them, I found it e easier to earn their trust when they saw me not just as a strategy guy, but as a fellow builder too. Like I wasn't there to build, but I could sit down with them and and not just use the jargon, but I, like they were better at it than me, hands yeah. down, way better at it than me. But I could, I, I could connect on that level, and I got the sense often that the 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 builders, the creators in any given business, when they see a strategy consultant in, they're like, Ugh, another spreadsheet goon or whatever. Um, and I, and I feel, I feel like I got to kind of dodge that bullet because I, I, in ways, I was like. I'm just a few steps ahead of you on the business side of things, but I actually understand we can talk through technical problem solving and stuff like that, even though it's not really what I'm necessarily here to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, so like it was a thing I was able to do to keep things interesting for me, but also became a business value to be able to kind of speak both languages, sometimes be a translator and sometimes right. just earn trust in two territories that don't consistently talk to each other. Right. Um, there's a lot of business opportunity in, in, in the, you know, Venn diagrams is a, a, a really great theory of positioning that lots of people have covered is you can position yourself as A or B or the A who does B. There's usually way fewer people of the A who does B. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think 
thinking about that as you're going through these transitions can be super powerful, super valuable. Right. Yeah. You can, being that, being that, that translator between business and tech, the tech team and the, the executive leadership was basically my entire job for years where I knew enough about the technology that a, a dev couldn't, you know, BS me. Right. right. They, like I know when they're BSing me. I know when right, they're, right, right. they're gold plating stuff. I know when they're suggesting a rewrite because and they want same to for the sales act. guys. And same, right. Right. So I would be, I, I was there impartially on what I would call an actual retainer, an advisory retainer, where mm -hmm. it's really just about advice and access to my expertise. It's not about my, you know, me building stuff. And sometimes it would go both ways. So like, so like, you know, a dev shop would, would really be dragging their feet on something. And I could tell, you know, I could tell right. that they were probably having bad employee churn or something. Something was going on internally. Their output dropped way off. They were dropping the ball. But on the flip side, sometimes the, the client, my customer, would ask them for something that was wicked hard. And and the the dev shop would send back like an estimate that was way higher than they expected. And they're like, no, nah, what you're asking for is super hard. Right. We could maybe change it a little bit. If you took out this and that, it would not be nearly as hard. If we take out the like, facial recognition piece and <laughs> just do that mechanical Turk style, then that would cut the price probably by 75%. No, no, we really need that piece. Okay, well, this seems like a reasonable price to me. You know, So it goes both ways where where you've got these two parties who don't necessarily, it's not that they don't trust each other, it's they don't speak the same language. So they're not 100% sure yeah. their communication is actually making it through to the other side. And so I would kind of be in there to to translate. And I get paid very well to essentially do that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And you know, it, I feel that it also ties into uh, the other piece to this process um, of using discovery projects and pitching discovery projects as like, a, as a business development tool basically is think like really understanding what no means and what resistance is like is rooted in because no look no means no but no means a bunch of other things too depending on the context and learning all those variations are, are valuable and you know one of the things i remind folks of is you know when you offer one of these things a line in negotiation I learned, I wish I could knew who to give credit to, is that a negotiation is not over until somebody says yes, <laughs> uh -huh. which yeah, is a really know. interesting framing. So there's a bunch of reasons why it's a legitimate no, including it's a definite no, but no could also mean it's not now. A no could mean not on those terms. No could mean not the thing you offered, but maybe there's another thing you could offer mm -hmm. um, and, and all of these other things. So you know, when somebody says no, I think a lot of people are afraid to ask why. And sometimes it is appropriate to ask why. I'd say it's often ask, it's often appropriate to ask why more often than people do. Um, you might get a useful answer, you might not. And I think that's okay. Go in, go, go in, there's no obligation for them to explain it. And there's no obligation for their reason to make sense or be true. You're just, you're, it's treated as information, not facts, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, if if somebody says no to something like a discovery project where the scope is small and the dollar amount is constrained, mm -hmm. there's a pretty limited number of reasons it's a no. Right. One of them is, and, and besides them just not wanting to spend money at all, right? That is 100% a valid reason. Um, it's also possible that this person you're talking to isn't authorized to spend money or spend money in that way. 
they might be afraid to ask the person who came to them and said, go find me a vendor to do X, Y, Z. And now they're going to come back and say, the vendor wants a project to figure out what X, Y, Z is, which again, depending on the business owner, they may go, that sounds great. Let's do that. But if the person in the middle isn't the authorized decision maker, they may be afraid to ask for that. And that's a reasonable fear for somebody to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's again, it's, it's why it's important to know who you're talking to in the context of a business decision. And that's not always obvious, right? Um, because sometimes it's it's just it's not because it's too expensive, it's because they need to convince somebody else or they need to decide it's worth asking for something different than the other person asked. Yeah, but they don't but ultimately capital on the line. Exactly. Perhaps. But like ultimately, if a client who where everything else is good and that person can make that decision, if the client doesn't trust you enough to do a small fixed price project, there's really only two pieces that you have influence over. One is that you can put in the work to earn that trust. And how you do that is going to depend on the person, depend on the project, depend on the kind of work that you do, depending on your own capabilities, capacity. Or you put the energy into clients that will trust you because there are some clients out there that just will never give up that trust. They want to micromanage the hours. And recognizing that that you're working with that kind of person and saying, you know what, I could try and train them in this direction, or I can just go find a client whose trust I can earn easier. There is a lot of times where that is the better, both short and long-term decision, because you're surrounding yourself by a, with a stable of clients who are a bit more sophisticated and have the capacity to extend you that trust. Not every client has that capacity in them as a business owner or a business leader. And the earlier you can figure that out, the easier it is for you to walk away and say, thank you. I appreciate our relationship up to this time. Uh, I'm going to be working on other things going forward. So if things ever change, let me know. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, spending the time to convert what is probably a bad fit client into a good fit client is, I just have never understood why to do that it's always like we'll just go find one that's already a good fit it's like yeah it's like a pair of shoes that don't fit it's like you're not gonna i could mess around with them and fill them up with the kleenex in the back or but it's like just get a it'd be easier to just get a pair of shoes than have like this pair of shoes tailored or something oh that's a really good analogy i'm gonna remember that one you know so it's just you know they're not bad they're just a bad fit for you so 100 fine move on i know a lot of people when they're maybe in the earlier phases of the career, particularly the second or third years of freelancing, any they don't get any leads. So when they get one, they are like total scarcity mindset. I'll do anything yeah. to close this deal. I'm going to lowball the estimate, even if I don't think I'm doing that. I am going to lowball it. Uh, even and then you know they're setting themselves up for a big problem later when it goes way over budget and just it's just this vicious cycle of. Or eating hours because they feel bad that the estimate was so low and it turned out to be way more work than they expected. It's just, it's, it's, it's the hourly trap. It's like you get trapped Mm -hmm. inside of that cycle. It's like the hamster wheel that you're stuck in and you can't get out of it. So this is a great, so to wrap it back up to the beginning, the idea is particularly with new clients, like new prospects that come through the door. Um, I have tons of students who do um, who do this, they have some kind of thing at the beginning that's very fixed scope, small kind of a productized service, discovery, planning, workshop, in a, you know, innovation sessions, something like that, that, uh, that they sell first. And it's, you yep. know, a 10th 
or less of what a big uh, engagement would be, but it's enough to test drive the relationship in both directions and get to know each other in a, in a working relationship. And, and then, you know, you're like, oh, this isn't a great fit or this is a great fit. And then they're going to feel like, like you might feel like you found the goose that laid the golden egg, but they're going to feel the same way because like you said before, it's hard to find someone that's a good fit for what, what you're looking for. Um, And then in the meantime, the other thing that, that we haven't really, haven't really talked about is, is do some marketing so that you are attracting people who already trust you as credible at doing these things that you will eventually put in your proposals. So if you're complete unknown, that's going to be a different, you're going to be given a different level of trust than someone who wrote the book on the thing that they believe they need help with. And every single one of their developers has it on their desk. And when, when the buyer asked the team for a recommendation of an expert, everybody held up the book. I mean, like you're, it's a totally different, you're, you're coming in with like the benefit of the doubt. I think you and I talked about this on the last episode. It was the idea of creating a market where the, you're you're not in competition. You're the, you're the obvious option. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm not here to hire a copywriter. I'm here to hire you Yeah. because I see your work and your work is great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A hundred percent agree. And I think that's, I think people sometimes like want to rush that process. And, and and again, back to that scarcity mindset, I totally get why, but I think if you flip that around and you come from an investment mindset and go, how do I, maybe choose work and choose clients that I'm optimizing for case studies, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or something along those lines where the work is going to generate assets effectively or be able to be translated into assets that'll be helpful in building that trust and credibility. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with you completely that doing the work before you get into, you have to do some work before you get into any of the stuff that we're talking about today. But I also think that you can do this a lot earl- earlier than people start, right? So you don't need a ton of credibility. I think that example of like, you know, every developer holds up the book because they know it, like awesome aspiration. You do not need to wait until yeah. you're that in order to start doing this. I just want to be super yes. clear about that is you can start doing this at a much smaller scale uh, once and, and and treat it as more, you know, I think about it as like the, you know, the hand to hand kind of relationship building where like focus on trying to apply this to people where either you have an existing relationship through old school networking, through delivering them some valuable offer. I'll tell you what, you said a magic word before that reminded me of a tip that I got. Somebody quote tweeted my one, some part of the thread. And this was such a great insight that I never had because I typically don't work with very large clients just because I don't like to. Um, uh, they said that when you frame the framing of this offer matters a lot because what it's called can also influence what budget it comes yeah. from. <laughs> and the example they gave was you can do the exact same discovery project where it is getting into a room for two to four hours to work through some a little, just enough structure where it doesn't feel like you're making shit up as you go. And they said, if you frame it as a workshop, there's a good chance that you can have them tap their education budget instead of whatever budget it is that their core project is a part of. And just because this called a workshop, they are able to code it within their budget or budget approvals, or perhaps they even have, you know, some built in 
workshop budget that they don't even need approval on, but because it's framed as a workshop, they're allowed to. Now, do not use this to cheat or lie, yeah. but if you use it as a strategic tool to understand the, the person that you're trying to sell this to, they may not be able to get budget approval for a discovery project or a strategy call, but they can easily get budget on a strategic workshop working with an industry expert to help us better understand and clarify the problem. Mm -hmm. Again, you have to understand who you're talking to at an individual level, at an organizational level to know how to do that kind of proposal or to, to like adapt that kind of offer. But that was such an interesting insight where the structure doesn't need to change if the, the way it's perceived by the business uh, is maybe a better match for a different part of budget that is easier to unlock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that would allow you to, to dodge the hourly requirement with a lot of big companies too, like government and higher ed, sometimes you have to send in like an hourly rate so they can compare apples to apples. But if it's a workshop yeah. or something like that, surely they don't pay for workshops on an hourly basis. By that the would hour. Be, that would be mm -hmm. bizarre. Mm -hmm. So yeah, great stuff. Boy, we could go all day, I'm sure. Listen, where or can we people- can, but this was great. Yeah, super fun, always fun. Um, where can, where's the best place for folks to go to find out more about you and what you're doing? Well, I mean, since we spent most of the session talking about a thread on Twitter, it's probably Twitter. <laughs> probably Twitter. Um, it's Alex Hillman on Twitter. Two uh, in, in, in less H I, yeah, Alex Hillman, two L's. Uh, you know, who knows what the future of Twitter <laughs> looks like yeah, after right. the news of this week? But that's a whole, that's a different podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, but I also, you know, warmly welcome a, 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 a private contact. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the conversation, I've got a book called The Tiny MBA that was also written on Twitter originally. <laughs> you can go check that out at tiny.mba. Uh, if you want to send me an email, alex at tiny.mba, uh, that goes straight to me. And I, I love hearing from folks who, you know, got something out of a conversation like this, tried it. If you tried it and it worked, please email me. If you tried it and it didn't work, also email me, not to yell at me, but to maybe figure out why it didn't work. <laughs> good idea. Awesome. That's great. Well, thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. Always good to see you. All right, folks. That's it for this time. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join me again next week on Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.